Well, we're going to turn to the book of Hebrews again this morning, and we'll begin by reading two passages. The first from Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2 and verse 1. For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His own will. Second passage is Hebrews 12, and we'll read the first four verses. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, or literally looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Let's pray one more time. Lord, we confess again that this is your word. This is the word of God. And Lord, we confess that we can't understand it rightly. We can't apply it rightly. Lord, we can't get any help this morning from anything that's going to be said apart from Your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we look to You right now. We ask for Your Spirit to come and be our teacher. We ask for Your Spirit to come and give light, give life. Come and Thy people bless and give Thy Word success. We look to You now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the message last week was the first in a planned four-part series on the topic of stopping spiritual drift. And the letter to the Hebrews has a lot to say on this topic because the believers addressed in this letter were themselves in danger of drifting away from the gospel. They were former Jews who had heard the gospel from those who had originally heard it from Christ himself. And they even had the gospel confirmed to them by signs and wonders in various miracles like we read about in chapter 2. But shortly after these Jews believed the gospel, they had begun to experience persecution. We talked about that last time. And as a result of this persecution, they were thinking about basically throwing in the towel and going back to Judaism. And this is why we find so many strong rebukes and exhortations and warnings in the book of Hebrews to hold fast to the gospel, warning them that if they didn't, they would perish. And one of those warnings is right there in chapter 2 that we read to begin with this morning. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. And there's the phrase, this idea of drifting, drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It's possible for you to hear a pure gospel. Again, these Hebrews heard the gospel from people who had heard it from Christ Himself. It's possible for you to hear a pure gospel and even receive that gospel. And yet, if you neglect the salvation you have received, you will begin to drift away from it. And if that drifting goes unchecked, you can make shipwreck of the faith. And the reason for that is because the moment you believe the gospel and set out on your voyage to the kingdom, there are opposing forces that are at work trying to hinder you, trying to destroy you. There's forces at work that are blowing and pushing and pulling you backwards. And if you simply fall asleep at the wheel, those forces will cause you to drift off course. And unless you wake up and do something about it, you're going to keep on drifting until eventually, slowly, gradually, you crash. 
And remember, that's what happened to Hymenaeus and Alexander. Paul says they made shipwreck of the faith. They drifted, they drifted, they drifted. Bam, shipwreck. They crashed. What are these forces that are at work seeking to cause a believer to make shipwreck? I mentioned last time that really you could summarize all of them using three biblical terms, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the three forces that are opposed to the Christian. But in order to get more specific and to provide a bit more clarity, we discussed last time seven specific causes of spiritual drift. The first five were things that are found in the book of Hebrews itself. We talked about trials and persecutions, and that was the big one the Hebrew Christians themselves were facing. Unbelief and hard-heartedness, and we put those together because unbelief and hard-heartedness go hand in hand. Prayerlessness, lack of fellowship, and then the fifth one was a lax attitude towards sin. And then we discussed two more causes of drifting that are found elsewhere in the New Testament, the schemes of the devil, which we talked about from Ephesians 6 primarily, and then uh, the idea of bad company or being unequally yoked from 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good morals. And then unequally yoked is found in 2 Corinthians 6 and then on into chapter 7. So the message last week was basically all diagnosis. What is spiritual drift? What causes it? Now this morning then we'll begin to look at actually stopping spiritual drift. And I mentioned last week that for each of the next three messages, starting with this morning's message, what we want to do is we want to take a key phrase from the book of Hebrews that relates to this idea of stopping spiritual drift and examine it. And the phrase for this morning's message is found here in chapter 12, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, or again, literally, looking to Jesus. How do you stop spiritual drift? You stop it by looking to Jesus. But before we actually consider what that means, I want to say one more thing here by way of introduction. And this is probably obvious and goes without saying, but I wanted to make it clear anyway. When I talk about stopping spiritual drift, I'm using the word stop in two different senses. On the one hand, I'm talking about putting an end to something that has already started. And so here is a person who's already drifting away from the gospel, and the exhortation goes out to that person, stop the drifting that is taking place in your life. So that's the first sense in which I'm using it. But stop can also be used in the sense of prevent or keep from happening to begin with. And so here's a person who is not experiencing any drifting at the time being, but the exhortation still goes out to them. You need to stop or prevent any drifting from happening in your life. And so when I talk today and over the next couple of weeks about stopping spiritual drift, I'm going to be saying things that apply to all Christians. For those believers who are currently drifting away from the Lord, I hope these things will cause you to wake up and stop the drifting that is taking place in your life. For those believers who are not currently drifting from the Lord, I hope these things will stop any drifting from ever occurring to begin with. And so the bottom line is is that stopping spiritual drift is something that every Christian here this morning should be concerned with, no matter where you're at right now with the Lord. So that brings us to Hebrews 12, then, and this phrase that we want to consider this morning, fixing our eyes on Jesus, looking to Jesus. Now notice here what the author does. Remember that these believers in Hebrews were in danger of drifting away from the gospel because of the persecutions that they were suffering. In chapter 10, it talks about how some of them were publicly ridiculed, some of them had things stolen from them, some of them were put in prison, and so on. They were in danger of drifting because of the persecutions they were suffering. So how does the author of Hebrews counteract that? Well, he goes back in chapter 11. He goes back to the Old Testament, and he gives example after example of these believers from the Old Testament. Remember, these were Hebrew Christians who knew their Old Testament. So he goes back to the Old Testament, and he gives example after example of believers from the Old Testament who held fast to their faith in the midst of trials. He mentions Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and so on. And then he begins here in chapter 11 to wrap things up. Verse 32 of chapter 11. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword... From weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. 
Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonments. Now, why does he mention mockings and imprisonment here? Because according to chapter 10, the believers here in Hebrews had themselves experienced mockings and imprisonments. You see, so he's encouraging them. He's saying to these believers, look, others before you have experienced the same things that you are, you are experiencing. And they held fast to the faith. Learn from their example. Hold fast. Keep persevering. And then he continues, verse 37. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. And then chapter 12, we'll go right into verse verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, see he's drawing a conclusion now, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So in chapter 11, the author sets before these Hebrews example after example of believers of old who had persevered in the face of trials and persecutions so that they too would be encouraged to hold fast in the midst of their sufferings. And now he's going to set before them the ultimate example of one who persevered through suffering, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so, again, verse 1 at the end there, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured not just mockings and imprisonment, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, you see, again, it's all about encouraging these Hebrews. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart in the midst of your trials. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against Sin. So the author here again is encouraging these struggling believers to hold fast by fixing their eyes on or by looking to the one who ran with endurance the race set before him, even though it meant suffering as no man has ever suffered. Now, how does this apply to us? Well, like these believers in the book of Hebrews, we too must run with endurance the race that is set before us. Everybody has a race to run. If you're a believer here this morning, you have a race to run. You can't just opt out of it. You're you're running. You have to run. It's not optional. Running with endurance is not optional. According to the Lord Jesus himself, it is those and only those who endure to the end who will be saved. And we simply will not be able to endure to the end apart from looking to Jesus. Now, perhaps you haven't thought of it like this before, but telling Christians to look to Jesus, to me, is an absolutely shocking thing to say. In fact, it's borderline absurd. What do I mean? The fact that Christians must be told to look to Jesus implies that at some point they took their eyes off of him. And that should amaze us. How can it be that someone who has really and truly seen the glory of of Jesus Christ could ever look away. We're talking about the one who John said was in the beginning with God and in the beginning was God. The one through whom all things came into being. The one who became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God at any time, John says. But he has explained him to us. We're talking about the one who spoke as no man before or since has ever spoken. Words of comfort and compassion and love to those who admitted their need. Words of scathing rebuke to those who were too self-righteous to admit theirs. The one who did so many beautiful works that if they were written about in detail, John says the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. 
We're talking about the one the Apostle Paul said was the very image of the invisible God, the one who was preeminent over all creation, the one through whom and for whom all things were created. Every star, every planet, every mountain and valley, every beast and blade of grass, through him, for him, the one who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his nature, the one who is better than the angels, better than the old covenant priests, better than the old covenant sacrifices, the one, again, that Hebrew says has been appointed heir of all things, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. Every breath, every heartbeat, every sunrise, every flash of lightning, every tear, every snowflake that falls upholds all things by the word of his power. The one who, even though he was equal with God, he was willing to lay aside his glory and become a man, the fullness of deity in bodily form. The one who was so zealous for the glory of God and so full of love for his people that he was willing to humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, bearing in himself the fullness of God's wrath against our sin, even to the point of suffering the very abandonment of his father. The one before whom angels and seraphim bow their heads, and the one before whom one day every knee shall bow, every knee shall bow, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And beloved, we could go on and on and on like this. And yet we, the ones that he lived and died and rose again for, we have to be told to look to him. Because we would rather fix our eyes on the trinkets and toys and glittering garbage of this world. Shame on us. Shame on us. Isn't that amazing? Can't you see how ridiculous it is that we would even have to be told to look to Him? It's incredible. It's absurd. And yet it's also the reality of our fallenness. The hymn says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It seems like we're only able to walk on the water for a very short time before we begin to look at the waves instead of Him. Now, I took the time to say all of that because we will never look to Jesus like we should until we realize how absurd it is not to. We have to get that right first. So we know that if we're going to run our race with endurance, we must look to Jesus. We know that it's absurd not to. So now the question is, how do we do it? How do we do it? How do we look to Jesus? And the first thing that we have to realize is that when we talk about looking to Jesus, we're talking about a spiritual looking, not a physical looking. I know this is obvious, but bear with me. The Bible talks about two kinds of seeing. On the one hand, you have physical seeing using our physical eyes. But the Bible also talks about another kind of seeing, which is true only of Christians. This is a spiritual seeing with the eyes of our hearts. And it enables us to behold invisible spiritual reality. There were many lost people at the time of Christ who heard his parables and who didn't have a clue what he was talking about. And Jesus said about those people, seeing they do not see. Seeing with their eyes, they do not see with their hearts. Even though they could see physically, they could not see spiritually. And this is the case with every lost person. Paul says the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And that is the condition that people stay in until God shines the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ into their hearts. And when that happens, the person who was once blind spiritually, can now see. Not, with, not just with their physical eyes, but now with the eyes that Paul calls in Ephesians 1, the eyes of your heart. Spiritual eyes that can see invisible spiritual reality. 2 Corinthians 4, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. How do you look at something that's not seen? <laughs> well, you look at it again with spiritual eyes, the eyes of your heart. For the things which are seen physically are temporal, 
the things which are not seen spiritually are eternal. And Peter says, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. How can you love and believe in and rejoice in a person that you've never seen with your physical eyes? Well, because you have seen him with your spiritual eyes. You have seen him with the eyes of your heart. So when we talk about looking to Jesus in order to stop spiritual drifting, we're not talking about looking with our physical eyes, but looking with the eyes of our hearts. We're not talking about looking at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. It's a spiritual looking, not a physical looking. All right, that's so far so good. But the problem is is this is where many Christians stop. They know they need to look to Christ, and they know that it's a spiritual looking and not a physical looking. I mean, how many times have you heard someone tell you you need to look to Christ? I mean, you hear that all the time, right? Sermons, you hear it all the time. Your friends tell you, you know. You go to them with a problem, and they say, you, you need to look to Christ. It's like, okay, well, how do you do that? Many Christians stop there. They know they need to look to Christ. They know it's a spiritual looking, but they don't know where to go from there, and they wind up trying to look somehow, but they're not able to see anything. And let me illustrate what I mean here. If I hold up this beautiful picture right here and tell you to look at it, it's not doing you much good. <laughs> Why not? Because there's no picture there to see. And you see, this is what a lot of times we do. We tell people to look to Christ, and we're giving them a blank piece of paper to look at. There's nothing there. But if I turn it around, now all of a sudden, if I tell you to look at this picture, it makes a little more sense, right? Because there's actually something there to see. And so the next step then in looking to Jesus is to figure out where do you get the picture from? Where does the picture come from? How do we keep ourselves from simply looking at an empty frame? Where do the pictures that we look to come from? And the answer is so simple, and yet it's so absolutely foundational. The pictures come from the Scriptures. The pictures come from the Scriptures. In other words, looking unto Jesus means fixing our attention on Him as He is revealed to us in the Bible. Or to say it another way, the key to looking to Jesus spiritually is hearing the Word of God physically. Let me say that again. The key to looking to Jesus spiritually, seeing Him spiritually, is hearing the Word of God physically. And by hearing... Reading is obviously included in that too, because what do you do when you read? You're basically hearing it yourself. You're reading to yourself. And so hearing, reading, it's the same thing. But again, the key to looking to Jesus spiritually is hearing or reading the Word of God physically. Now, again, this is so basic, but we need to get this. Another person said it this way, God has chosen in this age to reveal Himself to the world mainly through the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ, by means of the written Word, the Bible. Did you catch that? God has chosen to reveal Himself in this age through the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ, by means of the written Word, the Bible. Now, why do I say that looking to Jesus spiritually involves hearing the Word physically? I say that because there are several passages of Scripture that make this connection between hearing the Word of God physically and seeing Jesus spiritually. There's a lot, but we're just going to look at a couple this morning. The first one, Zechariah chapter 12. Second to last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah 12. Verses 10 and 11. 
God is speaking here and he's saying, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me. All right, there it is, the spiritual seeing. They will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadadrimmon in the plain of Megiddo. So the question then is this, when was this prophecy fulfilled? When was there a time when the Spirit was poured out and there was great mourning in Jerusalem? Anybody think of a time like that? Pentecost, exactly. Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. What do you have in Acts chapter 2? You have the Spirit being poured out, and Peter gets up, and he does what? He preaches the Word of God to them. He preaches Christ to them. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And Peter goes on, there's, there's a lot more to his sermon, but what happens as a result of Peter's preaching then? Now when they, the people, when the people heard this, it says they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Now, do you see the connection here with Zechariah 12? Zechariah 12 was fulfilled on the day of... In a way, it's fulfilled every time a person's converted. But definitely, for sure, we can say it was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in the preaching of Peter. Peter preaches about Jesus. The people hear the message. And as a result of this hearing, they look upon, spiritually, the one whom they have pierced. They see Jesus. They look upon the one whom they had pierced, and they begin to mourn and to weep bitterly, repentance, and they cry out, Brethren, what shall we do? The physical hearing of the Word of God on the day of Pentecost, the physical hearing of the Word that Peter preached, led to spiritually seeing Jesus. Another passage that makes this connection is Galatians 3. Let's look there. Again, we're trying to show how physical hearing leads to spiritual seeing. Galatians chapter 3, first two verses here. Paul says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, did these Galatian believers physically see Jesus Christ crucified? No, they did not physically see Jesus Christ crucified. It happened long before this in a different part of the world. They did not physically see Jesus Christ crucified. So why does Paul say then in verse 1 that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified before their eyes? The answer is in verse 2. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Hearing with faith. Again, these Galatian believers saw spiritually Jesus Christ publicly portrayed as crucified when they heard Paul preaching the gospel. You see the connection there? When they heard Paul preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, they saw him publicly portrayed as crucified, spiritually speaking. They heard Paul preach, they saw the Lord, they believed, and they received the Spirit. So once again, there is this connection between hearing the Word physically and seeing Jesus spiritually. 
And there's several other verses that we could look at, but we just don't have the time right now. But if you're a Christian here this morning, I mean, isn't this exactly what happened in your own life? I mean, it happens every time a person's converted. You hear the Word of God. You hear the Gospel, either in a sermon or someone shares with you in a conversation, or you just read it yourself in the Bible. Whatever the case, as a result of hearing, you begin to see spiritually. The Holy Spirit works, opens your eyes, and finally you begin to see spiritual reality. As you heard, you saw. You saw the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Again, it was this physical hearing that produced the spiritual scene. And so when we talk about looking to Jesus, we're talking about looking to Him as He's revealed to us in the Scriptures. Now at this point, some of you might be disappointed. Because you may have thought that all of the mysteries of looking to Jesus, and this phrase that you've been hearing so often and never understood, all these mysteries and secrets were going to be explained this morning. That some secret key of knowledge was going to be somehow imparted to you and you're going to uh, be able to look to Jesus like you never had before, to stop spiritual drifting like you never had before. And here you find out that looking to Jesus basically just means read your Bible. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a letdown, and that kind of anticlimactic? I mean, you already knew that you needed to read your Bible, right? But here's the thing. Stopping spiritual drift is not a matter of learning some secret or some new system of seven steps to this, that, or the other. Stopping spiritual drift is about getting back to the main thing, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's it, because that's enough. It's about getting your attention and your devotion back to Jesus like you did at the beginning of your Christian life. Remember Jesus' message to the church at Ephesus there in Revelation 2. These believers there in Ephesus had done a lot of good things, and Jesus commends them for the good things that they had done. But then he goes on and he says, but I have this against you. You've what? You've left your first love. They drifted, you see. They left their first love. And what does Jesus tell them to do? He says, remember from where you have fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. Remember, repent, and do the things you did at first. It's like, what? That's it? That's all there is to it? I mean, come on, Jesus. There has to be more that we have to do. There has to be some secret thing that we have to do to stop this drifting, to recover our first love. There has to be more than that. But you see, that's exactly our problem. We want something new, we want something better, we want something deeper, something fresher, some new experience, some spiritual bolt of lightning, and Jesus just says, repent and do the things you did at the beginning. Repent, get out your Bible, look to me, behold my glory on the pages of Scripture, spend time with me, give your attention to me. Will there be deeper and fresher experiences? Yes, a thousand times yes. But those experiences will mainly come through the hearing of the Word, not apart from it. Those experiences will come by getting back to the main thing. I mean, think of the book of Galatians as a whole. The whole book of Galatians is written because these... Galatian Christians were starting to think that they needed something more than Jesus, right? Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus dietary laws or whatever. And the whole book of Galatians is basically Paul saying, look, get back to Jesus. He's all you need. He has everything that you need. The book of Colossians is the same way. You had believers, again, who were getting into some kind of Jewish rules and regulations, but they were also getting all puffed up with these angelic visions that they had or whatever. And again, the whole, the whole book of Colossians is basically saying, look to Jesus. He's all you need. He's the fullness of deity and bodily form, and you have been filled in Him. He's all that you need. Don't be taken captive by philosophies and these different things. Christ is all that you need. 
Think of the book of Hebrews itself. The author of Hebrews basically spends the better part of 11 chapters talking about how wonderful Jesus is, how he's better than the angels, better than the Mosaic priests, better than the Old Covenant sacrifices. And then after painting this breathtaking picture of how wonderful Christ is, he finally says in chapter 12, look to Jesus. And it's like, yeah, I mean, how could we not look to him after you've painted this picture of what he's like? How can you not look to him? And that's exactly how we should approach this whole thing of stopping spiritual drift by looking to Christ. Instead of spending all of your time trying to figure out what looking to Jesus means, get out your Bible and start reading about Jesus. If someone comes to you with a problem and they're struggling with something, don't just tell them to look to Jesus and shove them out your door. Get out your Bible and read to them stories about Jesus. If you're out walking some morning and there is an absolutely beautiful sunrise taking place before you, you don't need somebody to come along and say, fix your eyes on that sunrise. You do it automatically because the beauty itself is magnetic. It pulls you. have some people here this morning that just came back from Colorado. When you're out there in the mountains, you don't have to tell people to fix your eyes on the mountains. You cannot do anything but fix your eyes on the mountains because of their beauty. The beauty itself is magnetic. In the same way, if we will simply give attention to the Word of God, reading about Christ in its pages, we will soon find that we are looking to Him automatically because the beauty of Christ that is found in the Word is itself magnetic. It draws your gaze to the only one who is worthy of your full and complete attention. Again, hearing the Word physically, we see Him spiritually. You know, we want to shortcut everything. We want somebody to just tell us, how, what does it mean to look to Jesus? But you see, that's, you can't do that. You've missed the point. The, the looking will happen automatically if you can just get His beauty before your eyes. When you see His beauty, you can't help but fix your eyes on Him. And in doing so, you will find that you are powerfully and securely kept from drifting away. And Deanne was just telling me last night about a track coach she had in high school who told her, uh, to, as you're coming into the home stretch, to pick a point ahead of you and fix your eyes on that point as you're running. Why do you do that? Because if you start looking around you, you're going to start drifting. You're going to start going off track. So you fix your eyes on a point up there so you can run straight. And this is exact, it's a perfect illustration of what we're talking about this morning. Why fix your eyes on Christ? Because otherwise you're going to start drifting off to the left, to the right. But if you can fix your eyes on Him and see Him, you'll run straight. In closing then, lest I be accused of taking an entire hour just to tell you that looking to Jesus means reading your Bible, I did want to end here with a few additional thoughts as to how we can more effectively fix our eyes on Him through the reading or the hearing of the Word. So a few things here in closing. First of all, we need to read intentionally. We need to read the Scriptures with the intention of meeting with the living Christ. If we simply read the Bible like we're reading the daily newspaper, we can't expect to come away with much. We've got to be hungering and thirsting and desiring to meet Jesus there. And if you don't have that hunger and that thirst, then ask Him to give it to you. Intentionally seeking Him out on the pages before us. You will seek Me and find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. In Matthew 5, one of the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. If you go to the Scriptures hungering and thirsting to see Jesus, I guarantee you that you will. The problem is not that He's not there. The problem is, is you don't have a desire to see Him most of the time. That's, that's our problem. Secondly, we need to read prayerfully. 
we need to read prayerfully. Psalm 119, David prays, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. And that should be our prayer every time we open our Bibles. What is more wonderful to see in the Scriptures than a fresh glimpse of Christ? So you pray, Lord, open my eyes that I might see Jesus, that I might look to Him. And this is a prayer that the Holy Spirit loves to respond to because the Holy Spirit was specifically sent by Jesus to glorify Him. You remember there in John 16, Jesus says, I'm going to send Him unto you. He's going to take of those things that are mine and He's going to reveal them or disclose them to you. That's that's what the Holy Spirit does. He glorifies Christ. One person said, the Holy Spirit's work is to glorify Christ, to enthrone Him in the hearts of His blood-bought people. And when we pray toward that end, we can be sure that we are praying according to the will of God. Thirdly, we need to read the Scriptures for application. We need to read for application. Not only should we try to apply what we read, but we should also, when we're struggling with specific things, go to the Scriptures in order to find specific passages that can help us look to Christ in the midst of those struggles. For example, you, you maybe you're struggling, there's people at work or whatever, and they're, they're telling lies about you behind your back, speaking bad of you. And so you go to your Bible. Where, where are there some passages that I can go to that talk about Christ himself being mocked, Christ himself having lies told about him, Christ himself suffering under these things? And you actually go and you read the passages. And, you, and what you'll find is that you're fixing your eyes on him. What about prayerlessness? I'm, su- I'm struggling with prayerlessness. Well, again, open your Bible. Go to those passages in the New Testament that talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and how He rose early to pray, how He stayed up all night to pray, how He's promised to meet with His people when they pray. Again, you go to the verses. Go to the passages. Maybe you're feeling that God doesn't accept you. So you, again, open your Bible and you go to the passages where Christ says, Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The one who comes to me I will in no way cast out. And you go to the passages, read them, meditate on them, chew on them, and you'll find sooner or later that lo and behold, you're looking to Christ. You see His glory. You're resting in Him. You find yourself looking to Christ as you read about Him. And see, our problem is that we sit there with our Bible closed, try to squint our eyes and somehow work up some kind of answer to our problems. It's not going to happen that way. God has designed it that you would get help, not by sitting there with your Bible closed, but by getting your Bible open, reading about Christ, and fixing your eyes on Him as you see Him on the pages of Scripture. Because God's desire is to glorify Himself through the glorifying of His Son. And we don't glorify the Son when we sit there with our Bible closed and try to answer our problems ourselves. We glorify the Son by looking to Him as the one who answers our problems. These struggles that once loomed so large begin to grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And haven't you experienced that so many times? This, this, you have this problem that feels like it weighs a ton hanging on your back, and you open the Bible, you start reading about Christ, and you see His beauty in a fresh way, and lo and behold, that problem feels like it grew light as a feather. Strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Now, it takes... Time and it takes effort to look up specific passages that deal with things that you're struggling with. Yeah, it takes time and effort. But again, do you want help or not? That's the question. How desperate are you for help? Do you want to keep from drifting or not? And if you're struggling with something and you don't know where in the Bible to turn for help, then ask somebody. That's what the body is for. Ask somebody here. Another brother or sister, say, I'm struggling with this situation. How can I look to Jesus in this? And when someone comes to you with that question, don't just say, well, I don't know, you'll just have to look to Jesus. I mean, that doesn't help anybody. They already know that they need to look to Jesus. So get your Bible open and show them Jesus. Again, don't just hold up the blank picture and tell them to look at it. Turn the picture around. Get your Bible out and give them a picture of Christ to behold. 
Fourthly, we need to learn to read the Old Testament in a Christ-centered way. Remember when Jesus was walking with those disciples on the road to Emmaus, and it says that beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He went all the way back to Moses and just started going through and explaining to these disciples the things about himself from the Old Testament. And what would it have been like to be there? What would it have been like for him to talk about some of these passages from the Old Testament, things that we probably haven't even thought about that are actually talking about the Lord Jesus Christ? What would it have been like to have heard just part of that conversation? The reality is is that the Old Testament is full of Christ. So you're not confined to the New Testament here. When we talk about looking to Christ, we're talking about the whole Scriptures. So when you read the Old Testament, start asking yourself, what does this tell me about Jesus? What do these Old Covenant sacrifices tell me about the Lamb of God? What do these prophets tell me about the one true prophet? What do these priests tell me about the great high priest? What do these kings tell me about the King of Kings? You see, looking to Jesus is not simply a New Testament affair. We must learn to see him everywhere that we read, because by and large, he is everywhere that we read. There's a lot of resources to help with this. One that I like is um, Spurgeon's Morning and Evening Devotional. A lot of those devotionals he pulls out from the Old Testament. Sometimes you kind of wonder if he's not playing a little fast and loose with some of those things that he pulls out. But nevertheless, the point is is that he's able to see Christ in almost anything. And it helps, you see, because the more that you see other people doing it, the more that your own mind starts to do the same thing. You start to see Christ in the Old Testament. Fifthly, we can begin to weave Christ-centered songs and hymns into our devotional times. Hymns like, And Can It Be?, Crown Him with Many Crowns, more modern ones like In Christ Alone. All of these songs are wonderfully Christ-centered songs that are chock full of Scripture. And if I mean, any song worth its salt is going to be full of Scripture. Not necessarily word for word, but scriptural thoughts, scriptural ideas, things that you can go to a verse and prove. Full of Scripture. Including one or two of those in your devotional times can help you to look to Jesus in a more effective way. And then lastly, this is just something I threw in here. It's totally a personal thing, but I've been helped by it. Um, I try, and I stress try, I try to use a Bible reading plan uh, called the Discipleship Journal Bible Reading Plan. And I've tried other ones. I've tried McShane's and some other ones too. And I always come back to this one, it seems like. And the reason why is because in this reading plan, well, there's several reasons, but the main reason why is because in this reading plan, you're always reading something from the Gospels throughout the entire year. Always reading something from the Gospels. Uh, And I've found that for myself, if I don't, if, if I'm not forced, in a sense, to read the Gospels, I tend to gravitate more towards the epistles, Paul's letters, you know, Romans, Colossians, Ephesians. And, and those are good, but you see, those are, just, those are a reflection of Christ. In the Gospels, you actually look directly at the Son. And so I commend it to you. Again, it's just a personal thing, but I found it helpful to always be reading something from the Gospels every day, throughout the year. Or at least that's what you're supposed to do. It seems like I fall behind pretty quickly, but but I like it for that reason. All right, well really that's all I have. And next week we're going to look at another phrase from the book of Hebrews related to stopping spiritual drift. And it's the phrase, let us draw near. Let us draw near. Uh, comes up several times in the book, and we're going to talk about then next week some things related to prayer, stopping spiritual drift by by means of prayer. I hope this was somewhat helpful. I really struggled with how to put this message together because 
The point I made there towards the end, that looking to Christ really is a reflex action. It's something that happens automatically when a person sees His glory. And so I was tempted to just spend 30 or 40 minutes just talking about Christ and just talking about His beauty and His glory and going through different passages related to that. And I think that would have been really good to do, but I felt like the more that I thought about it, I felt like we needed to lay some foundation work first and lay some groundwork first. Uh, And we need to understand a little bit better of what it means to look to Christ, that it isn't something that you just squint your eyes and do, but it's something that's a result of seeing His glory in the Scriptures. Well, let's close in prayer here, and then we'll dismiss. And again, I encourage you, if if there's things that you're struggling with and you don't know where to go in the Scriptures, ask somebody here. Ask somebody here for help. And if you just want to get some more ideas, I'm sure people here would have a lot better things to say than I would, practical things about what other people have done to try to look to Christ more effectively, then ask around. Use this time that we have after the meeting to discuss these things. Talk to some of these older Christians. Get some help from them. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank You again this morning for Your Word. And I hope, Lord, that we're able to see again how precious, how indispensable is the Word of God and how much we need to give attention and to take time to be holy by seeking out the glory of Your Son in the pages of Scripture. Lord, we cannot look to Him apart from that. So I pray, Lord, starting tomorrow, help us just to get a good start on this week. Help us to spend time with You. Help us to be faithful, to be good stewards of the gift of Your Word, to rightly divide the Word of truth, to give attention to these things. Lord, help us to remember to repent, and to do the things that we did at the first. Lord, I think of that hymn, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in His arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are a thousand charms. Lord, help us. Help us to to know, to experience those charms in a fresh way this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's be dismissed.